The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, January the 18th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today is Jack Horgan-Jones from our political staff, but we are still in a new year frame of mind around these parts. And one of our resolutions for 2023 was to focus a bit on the smaller parties on the political landscape to analyse where they stand and how they're faring. We're kicking off that process today, and I'm very happy to welcome Patrick Tobin, leader of Aintu. Thank you very much, Hugh. Appreciate it. It's great to have you here. I checked back, and the last time that you were in this studio was exactly four years ago on January the 18th, 2019. And it's quite a lot of things have happened since then, obviously. Uh, At that stage, the name of the party hadn't even been officially confirmed. And we talked about the challenge of starting from scratch with a new party. Um, First question is, how's it going? It's flying. We're delighted with it. Um, We are, as you say, four years old this month. You know, in that time, we've gathered 55,000 votes uh, in the last general election. Uh, We're polling in certain uh, opinion polls at around 3 and 4% at the moment, which is actually higher at times than the likes of the Labour Party and People Before Profit. Indeed, vote-wise, we exceeded People Before Profit in the last election, which was, I think, a significant uh, milestone for ourselves. We have a party now of about 1,300 members. Um, We've put in place about 55 local area representatives across the country, north and south. And we have elected reps now from Wexford to Derry, Uh, currently. And we've done that without any state funding uh, whatsoever. We're delighted with the level of development that's happened. Uh, Now, a big challenge for us is to make sure that we crystallise that rise in support in seats in local elections that are coming up north and south. Yeah, I mean, you've talked about how literally physically hard it is to actually get a party up and running. And I'm interested in, because you are a a party that operates across 32 counties, like like a small number of other parties in Ireland, Sinn Féin, People Before Profit, who you mentioned, and I think the Green Party are the the other ones. What's your experience of the difference between setting up a political party across two jurisdictions? Uh, Well, first of all, I suppose in the the north of Ireland, uh, it's obviously more difficult in that uh, politics is more entrenched in the North currently. And, you know, in fairness to Sinn Féin, they've they've kind of done a a significant job in making support for Sinn Féin nearly a cultural thing. Uh, So if you go into small villages or even the city areas in, in the North, you know, nationalists will, you know, they'll they'll maybe go to mass, they'll have, you know, Irish names for their kids, they'll have a GEA jumper on and they'll vote Sinn Féin nearly without even thinking. Do you know what I mean? That's nearly their cultural background. And so, uh, it has. That's a, not a good thing, is it? No, like the idea of selecting a person to represent you uh, without investigating what they stand for and what they're doing for you is actually quite dangerous. Uh, and I think that's, you know, Sinn Féin are in a funny space and that they had a very lot of strong candidates years ago who built their name for them in communities, etc. And now, especially in the North, they don't have to do that as much anymore. They can put up kind of anybody in elections and because of that general chunk of support those people will get elected. If you vote for a person, not on the basis of the work they do for you, you'll find that you'll get people who are just not good workers. You need to incentivize hard work and therefore you need to really think about who you vote for and measure the impact they're having for your community. And then you have many Republicans and nationalists who actually don't like Sinn Féin at the moment, but have lived under 70 or 80 years of unionist dominance and just can't fathom how the DUP 
won't accept a nationalist first minister. And as a result, they're pushed to voting uh, for Sinn Féin. So, like, what we're trying to do in AIM too, and we're a party of political reform, uh, we have big plans in relation to uh, the Assembly. We believe that no one political party should be allowed to crash the Assembly ever again, and no one political party should be allowed to stop an executive being formed ever again. Uh, and that would change the dynamic, first of all, politically, but it would also mean that we don't have this ludicrous situation that we have politicians in the North getting paid good money for sitting on their hands at a time where people are suffering significantly on the cost of living crisis. Some analysts have suggested that Sinn Féin um, is not particularly keen on that kind of reform because as, I suppose, the establishment um, nationalist party on, on that side of the divide in the North, it benefits from that effective veto which the largest party on each side currently holds. You're 100% right. Sinn Féin don't, don't want to see that change. Uh, and, you know, we have been cajoling them and pushing them into that kind of uh, reform. But they want to be able to use that leverage in their time of need sometime in the future, that they have the power to bring it all down. It's not good for people. Whatever crisis we're having in the South at the moment, the crisis happening in the North is absolutely incredible in terms of the cost of living crisis. The level of poverty, people using food banks, 75% of the population in the North currently are in food poverty, are in, in fuel poverty, which is outstanding in a Western uh, society. Unless we actually get the political system up and running there, you know, we're going to see this get worse. Because Can I just jump in uh, quickly? Um on the question of elections and elective mm. performance that AIM2 has had. So you're established 2019, you have a run of a year to the general election, you have a run of two years to the Assembly election in 2022, but you don't really make a mark in terms of seats beyond your good self in either of them. Is that a disappointment? No, I, I don't think it's reasonable. Um, I, I often listen to political analysis on new parties and it makes me smile to think that a, a new political party can just form and get lots of people elected. It very, very, very seldom happens. It has happened. It has. It's happened with the likes of, obviously, the Progressive Democrats back in the day. But you're, you're talking about senior government ministers. Social you know, Democrats uh, have quite a lot of TDs. I, I would say, like, if you look at the Social Democrats, they actually, their votes reduced in the last general election, so it did. And they have quite a lot of TDs because of the vote left, transfer left pact that they had with Sinn Féin, which means that they are extremely vulnerable to... Uh, Sinn Féin actually choosing enough candidates to bloody run in the next election. So our experience has been that we are growing um, organically uh, Mm. in terms of we are building organisations on the ground, in the grassroots, who are immersed in the issues affecting people uh, in in their areas. They're building profile for themselves. They're building profile for us. And we won council seats uh, in the the southern election just gone by within a number of months uh, of our formation. And we won a council seat in, in the north of Ireland. So what's, uh, your target, what's your target for the local and Europeans? Well, uh, w- one of the things I've learned probably from uh, former political colleagues is that, you know, it's probably foolish to identify targets. But I would like to see ourselves in the next local election uh, having at least a dozen councillors across the country. And I think that's absolutely feasible. In constituencies like Cork Northwest, we got 8.5% of the vote in the last general election. Places like Mayo and, and Donegal, Cavan Monaghan, we, we were actually only about 2,000 votes off a seat in the last general election. We have the organisation in place, we have the people in place now. And I think actually we are, we are mining a very rich seam of issues 
that is actually having a very big consequence on so, real So just to be clear, lives. you're targeting, what, up to eight seats in the Dáil? Well, no, no. In, in, in the next general election, to be honest, I would be very, very happy with three or four uh, Dáil seats in the next general election. Because uh, I suppose the challenge is, isn't it? I mean, I looked at the, you know, the overall vote share, both north and south in the various elections that have taken place, and you're around the 1.5 to 2%. And as you say, a lot of opinion polls at the moment show you a bit higher than that, around the 3 three to 4% of low margins of error uh, always apply. But 3 or 4% is not much good if it's evenly spread across the country. You need strong candidates and strong local presence and a smaller number of constituencies yeah, to deliver so your the, targets. Obviously, the elections that we're referring to, many of them were in five or six months of our foundation. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, most of those elections, the purpose of those elections were just to let people know who we were. So, you know, most of those elections, we were knocking on doors for the first time. People were going, gosh, I, I haven't heard of a What do you stand for? And we got a chance to engage with them, for them to learn about us, etc. I think you'll, you'll, what we've seen in the last two years is, poll-wise, a significant increase in many polls in the, the level of support that a is achieving. And the fact that we are outpolling parties like the Labour Party at this stage uh, is quite significant. I honestly think if it were other political parties, I think a lot of the media establishments would be would be, let's say, would focus on it quite a bit more. Let's talk about, I mean, what is the political opportunity for, for Rain2 here? I mean, political scientists say quite a lot that there's a there's a gap in the market in Ireland for a party that is to the left on economic issues and uh, and more conservative on social issues. Is that where you're where you're looking for your your voters? First of all, what I would say is that there is in Ireland there is a political bubble. And um, so in in Ireland you have a conflict or, or a gap or a chasm between many of the political parties um, in Leinster House and many of the people on the ground and what they're thinking on a range of different issues. There's political fashions um, and what we see is many of the other political parties congregate and concentrate in those spaces. And that's why I think many of the other parties of the left in, in many ways haven't seen any development uh, whatsoever. We would see ourselves far more as a party of common sense uh, in relation to a lot of issues um, that the other political parties uh, are not dealing with uh, at all. So, um, you know, but, but what, during, I, I was, COVID, was, during COVID, for example, mm. you know, we were the only political party that were asking for the government not to close down building sites. We were the only uh, state in the EU where all building sites were closed for a full quarter uh, of a year. The only country, yet the country with the highest uh, a housing crisis uh, in the in the whole of the EU, and you know we we are seeing at the moment uh, uh, a partial outworking of that. It's not the only cause of the difficulties we're in for sure, but a partial out, uh, outworking uh, of that issue. We were at the time uh, the only party that asked for uh, a, an investigation into how the government, you know, dealt with the whole uh, COVID crisis. So we we had. Thousands of people being moved from hospitals um, into nursing homes, many of them not actually being uh, tested in terms of whether they had COVID or not. We had, you know, the HSE basically telling uh, nursing homes not to close their doors to allow visitors to circulate. We were the only political party that actually opposed the COVID pass uh, in terms of people's access uh, to facilities. And don't get me wrong, we we weren't COVID deniers. We were uh, absolutely cautious and 
we wouldn't. There were times where there needed to be restrictions, and those um, were all perfectly legitimate positions. And in fact, yeah. I think as time goes on, and clearly some of those critiques at the time now look very justified. Although everybody was was operating, I think it's fair to say as best they could. There is another side to that, though, isn't it? I mean, you lost a deputy leader, um, Anne McCloskey, over her views on COVID, and at the time you said she was perfectly entitled to her views, and her views at the outset, it seemed to me, were within exactly what you're talking about here: reasonable critiques and debate. But she went on to be to have much more extreme views. So isn't there a danger there? Absolutely. And just just quickly, did you ever attempt to get her to express her views differently or change her views or keep her views more in line with the party? Yeah, so, like, first of all, um, in every political party, there are a range of different views. And Mm. in every political party, there is a desire that um, the views can be articulated in a cohesive fashion as possible. Um, you want to be able to have a situation where people can think for themselves, to challenge and to and to debate. And on some level, you want a broad enough church to be able to grow as well. But you also want people to stick to the agreed policies that are formed by the party. So there would have been those conversations. And when it became clear that that wasn't going to be the case, the natural thing to do is to part ways. And, you know, that's a, a normal... So natural you, didn't a- you didn't ask her to go as such? Um, it, it became very clear, I think, for both sides that uh, her views weren't consistent with the membership of the organisation. And you know, we are did very, you get her to try and express her views differently? Or we would have had conversations uh, with all of our members to request them to articulate the policy as voted on at Ordesh by AIM2 members because we put the membership in the leadership of, of the organisation. There's no point in having membership if you're not going Does to... Does that suggest that more of your membership had kind of anti-lockdown views? And if so, to what extent is AIM2 or was AIM2 a, a home for those views? Or what what is it about AIM2 perhaps that meant that those views were represented amongst the membership and indeed up to deputy leader level? Okay, so we, we believe that in society that people should be are able to articulate views uh, respectfully uh, and in a decent fashion on issues that they strongly believe in. We have this kind of mad idea that the competition of ideas um, politically uh, allows for people at home to work out what idea is the best idea. So we have a view within our organisation that we need to allow people to speak freely. Now, we also uh, we live in a society at the moment that many people probably don't feel that they can speak freely on a lot of issues. So um, we do have a society where... Um, there is like what? Sorry, what, what kind well, of for, what kind of issues do you think people feel they can't speak freely on? Well, so so, so for example, the, the, one of the difficulties in political discourse in this country is um, that people often get called names uh, in relation to views that they hold. Can can people so, speak? For, do you think people can speak freely on immigration issues, for example? No, I don't actually. Uh, now, aim to as a party once uh, strongly believes that this country has international obligations. We believe that people who uh, are fleeing war, uh, fleeing violence and fleeing famine, uh, that we have a moral obligation to do the best we can in relation to providing um, safe harbour for them in their time of need. Um, But there are also people in this country who have concerns, legitimate concerns, in terms of, uh, for example, the lack of public engagement between the states and communities, the lack of a social dividend uh, for communities, especially working class communities, who already don't have enough doctors, housing, uh, transport facilities, uh, educational facilities. Uh, we also believe that uh, we need to make sure that in that consultation there's some level of consent 
and that says communities should have a, a, a say over the future uh, of their own community. Does it say mean a veto? I, I, I think it doesn't mean a veto in, in all occasions. I think consent, if a wind turbine was to go up uh, at the back of your house, uh, etc., you should have be able to say. Like, I think it's funny how Aon O'Reardon can say that a block of apartments can't go up in his constituency, right? And yet a person in a working class area can say, we don't have enough doctors' places at the moment. So, like, I think the government's handling of the, the immigration situation... So maybe we should uh, come back to, to immigration because I want to just stick with this for a moment. Do you think that people can speak freely on transgender issues? Just, just on, on, on to answer your, your question on immigration. So the point of this is, if we push honest views below ground, what we do is we simply push those views into the hands of real racists who will actually use those views for nefarious reasons. So we have to be able to, as a society, say to people, yes, we need to do the right thing to people who are suffering. A person who has a bomb uh, land on their block of apartments uh, in Donetsk needs to be able to have safe harbour in this country, if that's possible. Yet, if a person has a job in Killarney in terms of the uh, hospitality industry, the government still hasn't provided necessary places uh, for refugees that they're able to speak about that. And 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 I'll say the incompetency in, in, in the migration issues is a serious point. So I suppose so, just, just, just to be very just, clear just, on this, no, just be very, very clear on this, I mean, you, you've made the point, and, and in fact, you know, you're not the only party to make, to make this point, that disadvantages communi- communities are suffering disproportionately or are experiencing yeah, disproportionately. Just even Madigan made an argument is, against is, is, a, a traveller's holding site going into South it, Dublin. And, I mean, that is clearly you know, the case, and there's a lack of social provision in, the, in, in, the, in those communities which should be addressed. But on the... On the the, the issue of economic migration, on the issue of uh, refugees, the current legal situation as pertains to all of those, including economic migration, do you differ in any way from the other, the other parties will, in the dock? We would differ in, 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 in to this extent. We believe that, for example, the application process is far too slow. So right now you could have people who are applying for asylum in this country. Um, it can take years for that to happen. It should take six months. Um, and a person who genuinely needs asylum, should have asylum. And a person who doesn't fit the application according to the law, they shouldn't get asylum. Because in actual fact, keeping them here for years actually takes that resource of a genuine asylum seeker. And secondly, a person who comes across on a a plane, for example, uh, who destroys their travel documents in an effort to maybe slow down their application process or um, not allow for the process to be able to work out exactly what's happening... Uh, we need to be able to call that out as well. They're quite small numbers, though. Really, they are small they? numbers. No, no, no. Listen, and, and, and don't get me wrong. They are minorities. So why, so why, so why does that have such saliency at the moment? You know, it was mentioned last night at Fine Gael Parliamentary Party. You mentioning it now. Like, is it is it kind of convenient to create an idea in some ways of uh, an illegal migrant that it's okay to kind of feel See, m- more conflicted about uh, than you know uh, someone seeking international protection or or someone seeking uh, refuge from the war in Ukraine. And why, the, 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 and why, the, the why sen- might that be the case? Why might you be doing that? The sentence that someone breaking the law should, um, you know, uh, suffer a consequence shouldn't be controversial, should it? No, as a statement, no. So even if it is small numbers, why is it controversial? And why then is there nearly an atmosphere created by... But if we're, if we're if we're if we're facing if we're, if we're facing and issues and of public I'm, provision, just and, just and, and just, and just to come back to the key point that, that I was mentioning earlier, that there are many in society mm. with genuine, real concerns who do have a fear, and if we do believe in that liberal democracy idea, that competition of ideas, respectful ideas, is the best way to find the best answers, we shouldn't chill, create a chilling effect on respectful ideas. 
Would you cap immigration in any way, shape or form, whether it be economic, whether it be beneficiaries of temporary protection seeking refuge from the war in Ukraine or international protection applicants? Currently, we wouldn't. Um, but we feel that's actually government incompetency is actually working as a, as a cap in its own right. And I'll give an example of that. So in April last year, the government I got a list of 500 buildings in which it wanted to use for the housing of refugees. In uh, early November, Roger Gorman went on primetime and said that 10 of those were in use. In September, in your own newspaper, it showed that 85% of people who had offered a, a private home accommodation for refugees had not been activated. A PQ that I put in showed that Roger Gorman had bought 29 buildings uh, by November. One was in use. Now, that incompetency that we see in housing and, and in the healthcare is rife in this. That needs far more focus in relation to what's happening here. Um, so short answer is he wouldn't change the migration policies of the state at all. If you're a Taoiseach in the morning with a big majority. Well, no, no. For, for a start, we, we, we have said we would change it in terms of people who are breaking the law. We would uh, change it in terms of the speeds uh, that it's happening uh, currently. But not in terms of economic migration and the, the way that's currently set up. I, I, I do believe that uh, without economic migrants, whole swathes of our public services would be in, in trouble. So, for example, when I go to hospital, uh, when you know people are going to nursing homes, uh, home care, a lot of our society is functioning because of the great work that many, uh, the great contribution that many economic migrants uh, make. Um, but I, I will say this, there is an issue of physics here that we have to come um, to a some kind of understanding on. So in other words, we do have a, a major difficulty in terms of the provision of housing at the moment. We do have a major difficulty in the, in the, in the terms of the provision of healthcare capacity at the moment. Um, and if those capacities are not fixed, it is going to make it difficult for this country to continue on the trajectory. So, all, that it's so a lot of the messaging or um, comments coming from government in the last kind of week or 10 days has been that we should expect or plan for the same amount of people seeking refuge in this country this year as last. But do you, we, do you, believe, do you believe that I, I'm, that level of uh, inflow can be accommodated? Well, first of all, the sentence that the level of people in Ireland right now, both migrants and refugees and people, Irish people here, can be accommodated in housing. Is It can't be accommodated in housing. It is fair to say that sentence now. We do not have the number of, the number of houses that we need to accommodate the people that we, we have in this country. Otherwise, there wouldn't be 11,000 people who are currently homeless in the state. So going forward, we need to have a sustainability, a manageability. And what sustainability means is that there's a balance between demand and supply in terms of services and housing. And that balance can be achieved two ways. It can be achieved by the provision of more capacity or it can be achieved by actually reducing numbers that come in. My desire is to see it be achieved by the increase in capacity. We're just going to take a quick break here and now we'll be back after this. And welcome back. Jack and Patter are still with us. We're going to leave immigration there for the moment. That was quite a long discussion about that. But very briefly earlier, Jack mentioned transgender rights. And I'm going to go back to that um, and other issues, partly because 
I think one of the things, I'm not sure if it's a bug or a feature from your point of view for Aintu, is that people know that you left Sinn Féin because of your, your views on abortion. And those views often you know, are accompanied by other views, by, by a philosophical world, worldview. And I take your point that, that you're arguing for a diversity of views and the right for people to have a diversity of views. But there are issues in the mix at the moment, including transgender rights, things like assisted dying, which we gather we may see some proposed legislation on, the, the question of commercial surrogacy, which are often linked in people's minds for good reasons. You know, they they uh, they represent conflicting worldviews. Do you see yourself as, I'm reluctant to describe them, but I am going to do it, as those sort of culture war issues? Do you see those as, as forming part of the, the mix in which AIM2 is engaging? Yeah, so first of all, you know, I would definitely see AIM2 as a bread and butter political party. So not, if anybody that looks at the work that we're doing, even though this conversation has already probably taken up more of the culture wars than the bread and butter issues... Um, we 90% of the work that we do are bread and butter. So anybody that sees the, the parliamentary questions, the speeches that we make, the campaigns. So, for example, I'm in part organising uh, 15 hospital protests on Saturday at 1pm in response to the hospital overcrowding. Um, that's a very, very big uh, political project to take uh, there. So the idea that you know 15 hospital campaigns have actually decided to work together um, to protests against the incredible situations in the hospitals has never been done before. And you're going to see thousands of people marching right across the country. So 90% of the work... That would be supported by lots of other political parties. No other political well, parties. On the, on the left. Oh, no, 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 no other political parties is, is involved in it at the moment. Now, I have to say, every political party is welcome to come along. It's, it's completely open uh, to, to, uh, to people. Uh, but it's been done on the national hospital campaign. So 90%, even though 90% of this interview won't be about the bread and butter stuff, um, 90% of our work is about the bread and butter stuff. But anyways... Um, on issues such as uh, the trans issue, for example, um, if a person uh, wants to identify themselves uh, in a particular manner in terms of gender, I will just out of common decency uh, recognise them in that manner, okay? Uh, but I also believe that there's a balance of rights here too. Um, so, so, for example, I believe that... Um, I do believe that women should be able to have safe spaces. I do believe that... Um, now, not that anybody from the trans community would be a danger in any way, I'm not saying that uh, to any woman, but that if we allow for, let's say, bathrooms and changing rooms, etc., uh, to be open to uh, biological males, it creates a situation where that can be abused by somebody. Um, so so does know, that require a change in the law? Because currently that is the situation. It, it, in, 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 just in terms of the way you've characterised it, a trans woman um, is able to use female facilities. Yeah, it, it may it may it may need a, a change in, in the law in relation to that. So we would also uh, support, for example, uh, women only sports. Um, we believe that uh, it's it's only fair to women that um, they um, get an opportunity to compete against biological women because. You know, in many sports, not all sports, in many sports, physicality is a significant element in relation to it. And, you know, that can have an effect over the fairness of the competition and over the safety of the participants of those sports. So you say women, yeah, as, sorry, uh, sorry, Patrick, just sorry, but in you say women only sport, um, you're drawing a, a direct line there between biological women and women. Are you saying the trans women aren't women? Yeah, I, I, I would say that uh, trans women are, are trans women and women are women, yeah. And that would be a view now that, see, again, you know, this, this, I love the, the, the way that's questioned is as if this is a shocking answer. But honestly... Well, well, no, no, I don't think Jack's saying it's a shocking answer. I'm, I'm certainly not saying it's a shocking answer. No, but it, it, like, that view is, is, is actually very commonplace in Ireland. The, you know, for example, this, a poll was carried out recently about whether or not in primary schools we should be teaching primary school children um, 
um, about transgenderism in primary schools. And the majority of the people that responded to that poll were of the view that we shouldn't uh, be teaching children uh, about in primary school in relation to that. So, and, that's, and that kind of nearly, again, goes back to that previous discussion that we had, is that in, in our society, there are people with different views than what I would call the political or media establishment um, or the, the political bubble that we exist in. Uh, those views are actually commonplace. They're respectful views. They're real views. Um, and they, they should be entitled to a political voice. So you voice. said you'd, you, you, you'd, just, you, you'd address a trans person by their, by their preferred or, or, yeah. or chosen pronouns. But what about um, people who, choose, who assert their right not to do so? I mean, obviously, there's yeah. a very prominent court case on that, on that issue. It's not specifically on no, that issue, I, but it's, sorry, it's around that issue. Yeah, so I, I do believe that people should be able to use, assert their right not to, um, not to use certain pronouns if, if they so wish. Um, and, and you mentioned the culture wars here as well, because... I, I think it's kind of funny. Sometimes people label individuals who stand for the status quo uh, in many issues as culture warriors, if you like. But in actual fact, if you're standing for something that is the status quo and has been the case for you know generations, you know you're not actually a culture warrior. If you're the person that's looking to radically change the societal impact. Our, our, our understandings or the definitions of gender or well, that makes you the, the, the culture warrior because like you're engaging in a project of radical change. Now, and I would actually assert that that's one of the major problems with the likes of the Labour Party, Social Democrats and the Greens in many ways. And one of the reasons why they haven't been able to, to grow because they have been focused on the culture war issues far more than the bread and butter issues that are affecting their so when you talk about those people being not in touch with people on the ground, is that a critique really of, a, of an elite I do in, think, uh, in media the, and politics? There is an elite in, in, in media and, and, and politics. And I think you've used the phrase cabal before. I'm not sure if you have used the words uh, the cabal, so I'll, 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 um, def- I'll defer to your, your memory yeah. over mine. But um, no, that, that, there's no doubt that there but is... But sorry, is there, is there like an insiders and outsiders dynamic at work <coughs> I think me, one in, of the, in Ireland and in, in Irish politics? I do think one of the difficulties that we have... Do you believe yeah. that? I do think in, 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 Irish, in Irish politics, one of the difficulties that we have is um, we have very good media, right? And don't get me wrong, we have... Flattery ver- will get you <laughs> everywhere. We have very good journalists in this country. But... We don't have a big national media, right? So we only have about five or six national media companies. We've only about a thousand national journalists in this country. Many of them will have to work for different media organizations through their, their careers and will have to work with each other. And if we're honest, many of them are from the same demographic. They're from the same geography. They're roughly the same age, from the same class uh, as well. So it is a very concentrated media in other countries they have a left wing, they have a right wing, they have a centrist media, etc. And in those types of environments, like media, like politics can't survive without media because you're the oxygen in which we communicate with people we want to persuade. But in other countries, that diversity of media allows for the diversity of political views and then allows for the competition, that kind of survival of the fittest of the ideas. But in Ireland, we don't have that diversity. Does that mean that, that things are more healthy, say, in the United Kingdom or the United States than they are here? No, I think one of the problems in, in, in the United States and uh, in Britain at the moment is, um, they ha- like, like first of all, <laughs> you could spend the whole discussion talking about the problems there at the moment. But, you know, the, the political system in Britain is broken completely. There is po- Political parties should be about 
big ideas, issues that are bigger than the individuals, major projects that you need to achieve. But political parties in Britain are simply now about, um, you know, personal advancement, about personal ambition. So there's, there's no collegiality, there's no cohesiveness, there's no big project. And that's why we're seeing this kind of constant fracturing and, you know, uh, replacement of, of prime ministers uh, as well. Um, I think one of, the, one of the big problems as well that's happened in the, like, the likes of the United States is because in the United States, what's happened is a big chunk of people have probably lost confidence in traditional media. And I think they're consuming an incredible amount of social media, which a lot of it is destructive. Uh, and as a result, um, political views are becoming far more extreme. As Do you a see any of sign of that? I mean, I'm interested in you starting up a new party. Presumably all kinds of different people come through the door and some of them, you know, with a whole well, wide range of views and some of those views might be uh, off the wall, frankly. Yeah, so in, in every political party, there's a level of, level of filtering that happens. So it's, if you can imagine that people join, people see do they belong, and the organisation sees do they belong, and if either side realises they don't, well, people get filtered out over time. And, and that happens within every organisation. Have you ever kicked anyone out? Or rejected an application? Um, I would say that we haven't accepted applications of people, yeah. For what reasons? Well, for people who had... Part, uh, views that uh, were completely opposed to our views. Did, it, did you find it troubling at all that those people identified with Ainto at some level? No, because believe it or not, I was in, a, in another political party before uh, and I sat in that uh, many a common meeting there uh, who would make Ainto members sound like angels in comparison to the views that were expressed in the other political party. I want to talk <laughs> at, I'm talking about that other political party, but to be fair, you know, you did yeah. mention the bread and butter issues. And I listened back to our conversation four years ago, and at one point I, I, I was interested. You said, um, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, that, that three politicians, Lisa Chambers of Fianna Fáil, Ruth Coppinger of the Socialist Party, and Louise Riley of Sinn Féin, that there was no difference between them. On, on on any issue. Now, two of those, as it happens, didn't get re-elected at all at the, at the ensuing election. Yeah. But I'm looking at, at your party here now and looking at your policy policies as, uh, as, as laid out on your website. And they look very similar to me to a lot of the policies that I see from, or statements that I see and what's wrong with the country and what needs to be done to fix it that I see from the, the Social Democrats, from the Labour Party, from people before profit. And, you know, on a, you know, on a good day, large swathes of the Green Party would identify themselves on the left. Uh, Sinn Féin obviously do, you know, sometimes Fianna Fáil even do. And I just wonder, what's your point of differentiation apart from those social issues, which we've just spent so much time on, from those other parties that define themselves on the left? Yeah, so like, like there's no doubt that... Uh, as a party that's, you know, uh, I would say that a centre-left in, in terms of economics, that we would share policies with them. Now, I have to say, to be honest, like people before profits are very, very left uh, compared to ourselves. I've listened to Ruth Coppinger uh, stand in the doll and state that access to uh, electricians and carpenters should be through a government department. You know, that's outstanding, you know, that you wouldn't have, you know... Um, so that would be different from Lisa Chambers. In, in, in that scenario, so it would that was be, a very broad brush stroke that there. scenario, it would be. Um, but let, let's say in, in, in the health service, for example, one of our reforms that we want to bring about in the health service is we want to see activity-led investment in health. So currently, if you're a small business, you orientate all your investments to the point of contact between the customer and the business. So because value comes to the business through the value you provide to the customer. In health, it's completely different. So hospitals get budgets no matter how many people they treat. So in, in, you have a situation in Ireland that, you know, a elective surgery could close down for three or four months over the winter and budgets will remain the same. So what happens in my view is that much of that actually goes towards um, 
uh, much of that investment then goes towards different layers of management and bureaucracy, which makes it harder to manage because it's much more opaque and also is less productive in terms of fixing things. So what we want to see is activity-led investment. So a hospital should get its budget. I'm not saying that the budget should be changed radically in, in this totality, but that the budget, the hospital gets paid for the number of operations it, it undertakes, the number of consultations, the number of treatments that it delivers to people. And if that happens, the hospital has no choice but then to start to orientate funding towards the front line uh, where, where, where patients most need it. Now, that's a, a, a and a common sense, practical reform that no other political party uh, is talking about uh, in this state. You know, I do think many of the, the parties of the left, um, you know, see the, the, the housing crisis mostly as a social housing uh, crisis fix. Now, absolutely, we believe that social housing is an incredibly important part of that uh, fix. But we, the bird can fly on one wing in relation to uh, solutions in terms of housing. And that's why we believe that we need to start to to reform the delivery of uh, private house uh, building uh, in the country. And right now, you go to builders across the country and ask them, are they building this? They say, no. We say, why not? This is one, because we can't afford to build at the moment because costs are far too high. And secondly, because the costs are increasing so much, it uh, creates a risk for us uh, in terms of uh, getting involved in large uh, contracts and large bills. So, Just, just to be fair, with, with Blightly, mm. I could be talking to five people from five different other political parties and they would have made exactly Sinn, that same point. I would say if, if, if Sinn Féin spent 1% of their time articulating their housing policy on the private housing sector, I would be, I'd be, I'd be surprised. Okay, fair enough. Speaking, speaking of Sinn Féin, actually, I mean, again, the last time we talked, um, you had only recently left. It's four, four and a half years now since, since, um, since, since you left Sinn Féin. I mean, since then, they've, they, I think they've doubled their popularity and they're the largest party in the country. I'm not connecting those two things, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder now, with the, with the benefit of a little bit more uh, distance and perhaps a more dispassion, um, what do you, you think of that party? There's all kinds of interesting things have happened to it since right up to and including the current very interesting trial in the special criminal before, court. Before, just, I, 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 I go into that. Can I just say, just again on the bread and butter issue, just on, on health, okay, if I can. Um, 6,000 beds were closed in the last, uh, since 2008 in health. The government closed eight A&Es in the last 15 years in health. There's 30% too few GPs. The HSE admits it's 200 uh, ICU beds too few. Now, no other political party is, is focusing on the closure of A&Es. No other political party is actually saying this government needs to actually look at the hospitals like Ennis that are closed A&Es and reverse that decision. Senior consultants in the HSC are admitting that those decisions should be reversed now or that, and that there were mistakes in the first place, but no other political party is saying okay. that. And okay. that's, that's another significant difference between ourselves. Uh, in relation to, to Sinn Féin, listen, Sinn Féin um, are a very su- successful political organisation. Um, they take organisation seriously and they take grassroots development seriously. In comparison to much of the, the political establishments, which I would say are hollow, ho- you know, ideological hollow husks, they don't have grassroots uh, so much anymore. That's a big factor in their development that's probably not really focused on on a, on a regular basis. They also have you know, a project that's bigger than the organisation which attracts very uh, useful individuals, very able individuals, and their front bench is probably significantly more able than uh, a lot of the other political parties uh, currently. I think the danger that Sinn Féin is in at the moment is it's now trying to do two things. It's trying to be the loud voice of anger within society, but the safe hands of government too. And I think that's going to be a very difficult trick to 
to, to, to deal with and, and to manage. And actually, there's been a fall in Sinn Féin uh, support, small fall, but a, a fall nonetheless off its peak, probably last October. And I think that's a reaction to they trying to do two things uh, at once. I also think that Sinn Féin is going to be in trouble. I do think they're going to be the next election. There's a, there's a saying in the Irish language, uh, there's no medicine for love but marriage. Uh, there's no medicine for Sinn Féin but government. And I think that when Sinn Féin go into government, they will probably experience um, what Gilmore experienced. In is the ways. ideal for Aintu then of Fianna Fáil, Sinn Féin governments well, next time around, that's where the opportunity lies? I think that the ideal for, for Aintu is that we, with the country is fixed and we, 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 we do solve the issues and we will talk to other political parties who have real agendas in fixing that. Um, but uh, let me tell you, uh, if there's a Fianna Fáil, Sinn Féin government, Aintu will be very prominent in holding them to account. Sinn Féin have put themselves on a very high pedestal and they have, you know, they are on a very high moral ground in terms of they've promised everything to everybody uh, over the last number of years. They won't be able to do that. Uh, and as a result, it is going to be extremely interesting. Uh, will they manage? And another thing about Sinn Féin support, I would say that at least 10% of, of Sinn Féin's 30% supporters is what I would call an anti-establishment uh, vote, a significant anti-establishment vote, they're going to find it very difficult to hold on to that. Sinn Féin is a party, there's a huge amount of commentary in the media and elsewhere about, you know, its internal organisation, its culture. Uh, you have been privy in a way that others have not to those things. Um, I'm writing the book. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> um, in your time, or even now, reflecting back in your time, Sinn Féin, you know, were there things about how it's internally organised or its culture that you believe to be problematic then or now? Um, listen, I, I, I always feel cautious about slamming the door too much on the way out of, of the, the room to a certain extent. I will say that one of the, the, the great strengths of Sinn Féin is its cohesiveness, that it actually, it, it organises, as a party, it comes to particular strategies and views far more, you know, within this totality of this party than, than other political parties. It's kind of, it's a, it's a weakness in that it's a little bit slow in, in coming. It's kind of like a, an, a large oil tanker sometimes turning. Uh, it takes a long time for it to, to, to turn. The difficulty is much of its decision making it's, is uh, concentrated in what's called its National Officer Board, uh, which is about 10 people. And when its National Officer Board makes a decision, it has to make a decision um, in uniformity. So, you know, you might have two, two views going in there and, and it kind of is split nearly between those two views. But everybody that comes out of the room can only have the one view. And when that goes into the Ord Corlia then, they're the most influential people. They go into the Ord Corlia. Only about a small percentage of the Ord Corlia is actually elected from the Ordesh. Uh, most of it's, a, it, it's from uh, appointees or from different elements of the party. And, you know, then the, the National Office Board goes into the Ord Corlia and it's you know, persuades the Ord Corlia to come to view. And then the Ord Corlia must have a, a uniform view. So you can't be a member of the Ord Corlia and, you know, vote against the Ord Corlia at uh, an Ordesh, for example. And then you have about 400-odd uh, elected reps, and they see which way the wind is blowing, and then they become typically uniform in their view. And you have that top-down, kind of like the democratic centralism uh, of the Workers' Party probably in, in previous years. Does that explain why they haven't had a leadership election in four decades? It, it, pro- it, it, it does explain um, the uniformity of the decision-making process. Now, that's wonderful in many ways for kind of having a single voice in, in its engagement with society. But the danger is, it, you know, you need a balance. You need pushback. You need views and uh, you need wings. You need 
um, a broader church. Uh, because like any human organization, if there isn't a opposing view, if there isn't a, a space for um, uh, competition, well then that organization is likely to swing fairly radically in terms of what it believes in uh, and what it wants to do. Um, and I think that's a weakness within Sinn Féin at the moment. It's, it's a strength and a weakness at the same time. When you were, um, when you were, you were a front bench member at Sinn Féin, you were I was, uh, bench press, yeah. yeah um, were you able to appoint your own advisors or assistants? Um, well, it's in the early years, um, most of my people were appointed for me, uh, both uh, locally and um, in the doll. Now, I would have had some level of say over it, and in my case, there wasn't pushback uh, in it. As I got a little bit longer in the tooth, uh, I took control of that. Um, so there would have been cases uh, where people, you know, did have uh, people working for them that they didn't want. I, I know of occasions where there were tears, where PAs told TDs what speech to give, uh, etc., I know of one occasion where a TD gave a speech in Irish because the TD didn't want to make the, speak in, the speech in English um, because it would have less currency uh, in, in, in the media, uh, etc. So, you know, and that's a weakness because, like, a foundation of the democratic process is actually the relationship between the TD and the constituents who elect them. And, you know, we do want strong, cohesive parties, but if a party really gets in between that relationship between the TD and the constituents it actually distorts the, the democratic elements uh, of the system. You were, you, know? okay. you, were, you were okay with all that, though, Pater, weren't you? Because you'd, you'd, you'd still be in Sinn Féin if it weren't for the abortion issue. Well, it, first of all, um, I wrote a, a long document um, within the organisation a number of years before I left. I gave it to a jury, and these were reforms of the political organisation that I, I, I wanted. And when Jerry retired, I gave the same documents uh, to Mary Lou. So, like many people... The first place to seek change is within the organisation. Uh, when it became clear to me that change wasn't possible within the organisation, I left. And, and don't get me wrong, it wasn't easy. Like when you're invested for 21 years in a movement such as that, in a movement where you believe the world is against you, um, you know, it is a very difficult place uh, to actually leave. But, you know, my view in the end of the day is that I have a responsibility to to bring my own judgment uh, to the political uh, questions of the day and then the people in Midwest have a right to to agree with that or not to agree with that, and uh, you know that's that's that that is the key relationship within a democratic process. And if that relationship uh, is corroded in any ways, it, it it leads for a less democratic process. Do you feel? And we should probably move on from Sinn Fein. <laughs> Just very briefly, do you do you feel they're a good steward of republicanism at the moment? Um, I, I would feel they're, they're, they're too accommodating. I, feel they're willing to make too many bargains. I would say that um, they, Sinn Féin are not as Republican as they were a couple of years ago. I'll give you a, a couple of examples of that. Um, so, for example, um, Sinn Féin's major objective politically is to have the first ministry of the executive of Stormont. That would not have been their major objective ten years ago. You know, the idea that's you know fly the flag because one day we are going to be. You know, the first minister uh, in the uh, Stormonts, you know. Uh, the second issue, and I'll give you another example of this. So for 200 years, Republicans have gone to London and told London that they have no rights to legislate for Ireland. Uh, and on the, the issue of the right to life, Mary Lou, Michelle Gildon, you and others went to London and demanded that they legislate for the north of Ireland on the issue of abortion. Now that's, you know, I, I know for a fact that we have Francie Malloy and other MPs would have gone to Mary Lou's office and 
banged the table and said that this was a break with republicanism. Uh, and no matter what we may agree or disagree with on the issue of the right to life, it was an astounding change uh, in terms of republicanism that Sinn Féin will be going to London and demanding that London uh, legislates for the North. We do have to leave it there because I know we do have to let you go. Jack is going to be giving you marks out of five after you leave, of course. <laughs> I, have to, I have to warn you that, Patter. But listen, thanks very much indeed for joining us. <laughs> Thank you very much. So Jack's still here. Patter's gone. Jack, what did you think? Very interesting. Yeah, like, I mean, I think I think we're both of a similar view that there's a, a natural home for uh, for Ain2 um for conservative voters, socially conservative voters, uh, and the degree to which they can kind of uh, amend their message to um, make themselves a, an attractive home for It's the, one of the abiding mysteries of Irish politics is why, because there is, you know, a relatively substantial, somewhere between a quarter, in the quarter and a third um, of the electorate who voted certain ways in the in the big social referendums of the last uh, yeah. of the last decade or so, and who don't really have, it's fair to say, uh, a kind of coherent political representation. Yeah, and one of the interesting things that he said as well was kind of like he feels there's a, a large cohort of Irish society who feels they can't speak frankly on certain issues and that's how we got into the immigration and then and then the trans um, rights issues. So if he, or if the party ends up being a home for people who kind of, for want of a better word, feel you can't say anything these days. You know, I, I get the sense... Um, that there probably is a, a decent-sized constituency of people out there and, you know, they may be open to voting for Aintu. I think that the the proof of that particular pudding will be also identifying good candidates, um, doing the groundwork and the groundwork that Patter has talked about before and um, establishing themselves with credibility uh, both in local and Europeans and translating that to to, uh, to national level success. One thing I did wonder about listening to him was, I mean, he's, the, the, the constituencies he's, he's looking towards tend to be more rural than urban, might be a little bit younger, older than younger, don't want to stereotype them too much, but I think those are demographic realities. There are independent TDs out there in some of those constituencies people like Carol Nolan um, who you would have thought might flock to Aintu's banner but is the reality in Irish politics that for an independent it's not necessarily strategically a good idea to flock to anyone's banner. Exactly and the strength of their brand is the independent. I mean the flip side of that of course is that you know there are benefits to to operating in a party group particularly at a parliamentary level and that's why we've seen technical groups formed and so on and so forth in the past so you know perhaps that's something that he can he can sell with them. I think that like if he could convince a couple of heavily branded independents uh, to join AIM2 that would absolutely put his, his chances of a decent dollar return next time out um, through the roof and much stronger than they are now. Is it a long-term project? Is it, is it, more, is it more about the election after next and, and, you know, can a small party sustain itself until that? I think it's a long-term project for him, but I think that it does have to start translating itself into national level electoral success at some point sooner rather than later. Like, I mean, I think if they're walking away from the next general election, which is, you know, on the balance of probability is going to be either late 2024 or early, early the following year, if they're walking away from the next general election with just one TD again, then I think people will start to say, you know, what, what is the point of this? And they will have at that, at that point had five years of a run of things and if they're not making a dent at a national level why why is there a name to it all thanks jack we should say that there are various other political narratives some quite interesting going on today we're recording this at at the lunchtime on wednesday the 18th and we will be covering those in much greater detail in our regular friday podcast but we'll leave it there thanks very much to our producer declan Conlon and our engineer jj vernon and we'll be back with you very soon thanks for listening